Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. The Tudor Court was a rarefied environment filled with striving young men, perhaps as many as a thousand of them. The only women around were those from the Queen's small household. And the other thing to note is that many of these male courtiers were particularly young, in their 20s often, when they came to court. And so something had to be done to channel all those unconsummated sexual energies and to fill those bored hours. And men chose, therefore, following the game of courtly love, a mistress whom they served faithfully and exclusively. And they would do this by dancing and by writing amorous poems to her and by giving her gifts and singing her songs. The dynamic of this game of courtly love was very much one in which the energies were all on the side of the man but that the woman could respond with agency, so she might choose to acknowledge her suitor or might disdain him completely. And actually, the themes of unrequited love and longing and discontent and suffering are very conventional when it comes to courtly love poetry, for example. Courtly love has been described by Nicholas Shulman, one of Thomas Wyatt's biographers, as the indoor or feminised division of chivalric games. And it is a kind of chivalric code of conduct. Sarah Gristwood has written The Tudors in Love, and it explores this convention of stylized ritual flirtation at the heart of the Tudor court. And she starts by taking us all the way back to the troubadours of southern France and the stories of Lancelot and Guinevere. Sarah, it is always lovely to see you. You feel like a sort of trench mate when it comes to thinking about the Tudors. But we are thinking about the Tudors in love today. So let's start with a definition. How would you define courtly love? Right. It's kind of the $64,000 or ducat or whatever question. Because on the one hand, to me, it's kind of everywhere. But boy, it's hard to define. You don't need words, you need a picture. The picture that's in all our heads. I mean, I say our, certainly anyone who grew up as a kind of bookish, nerdy, history-loving teenager. And the picture is basically a knight kneeling in service before a lady. 
Now, we probably get it not straight from the 12th century. We get it filtered through Victorian eyes. That's the image that's come to us through a thousand children's books. I first got it with a slightly mocking twist, but nothing wrong with that, through Camelot the movie and Vanessa Redgrave singing away about the simple joys of maidenhood, which basically meant number of men slaughtering each other for her sake. But that idea of a relation between men and women, it's come over the centuries to colour a huge amount of what we think of as romance. And really, even in its direct form, it's still with us today. Born, of course, in the 12th century, you know, the songs of the troubadours, the court of Marie de Champagne, you know, Eleanor of Aquitaine's daughter, by her first marriage to Louis of France, where Chrétien de Troyes, at Marie's commandment, wrote the story of Lancelot and Guinevere for the first time. And that's pretty weird stuff. Lancelot crawls over a bridge made of a sword blade to get to her. When he leaves Guinevere's chamber, he genuflects, as if at a religious shrine. He finds a comb of hers discarded by the road and starts worshipping it, literally, because it's got a few of her hairs caught in it. I mean, today, you'd urge him to seek professional help, and fairly urgently. But nonetheless, something about this extreme picture answered enough of an emotional need that over centuries, it never went away. So it's the suffering lover, who's a man, appealing to his beloved, who is this almost deified figure on a pedestal, and who is the image you conjured up as a sort of pre-Raphaelite, is la belle dame sans merci. Yes, or at least that's what it is on the surface. Now, over seven centuries or more is a long time for something to stick around, and believe me, it changed a lot over the years. And what I came to feel was and heaven knows I was hardly the first to do so. I mean, Christine de Pizan was saying that a long time before even the Tudors, that courtly love in theory was a creed that reverenced women. But in fact, it contains at its heart pretty much a trap. You've just rightly used the word pedestal. The fact is when you're stuck up there on a pedestal, there's not much you can actually do except fall off it. It was born out of a world where partly in the medieval castle and, of course, at the Tudor court, men outnumbered women. I think we have to remember that sort of basic pragmatic fact. So a kind of normal, what we'd see as a sort of 50-50 relation between the sexes was never going to be possible. It was a world where women had very few rights in either legality or practicality. It was a world where both church and state demanded the harshest penalties for a woman's adultery. And yet, this strange, strange fantasy wound up reverencing love, even or perhaps especially adulterous love. Lancelot and Guinevere were not condemned because it was King Arthur's wife having it off with his best friend. They were reverenced 
for the strength, the purity of their passion. Something about that made enough of an emotional appeal that it's still there in, you know, half our movies and half our romantic stories. Some argue that it's an, I quote, outdated literary model and that there was no evidence this ever existed in real life, especially by the time we get to the 16th century. So what would you say to them? Absolutely. I'm well, well aware of the debate. I find it very interesting. But to look at its historiography, the phrase courtly love came into popular use only in the late 19th century, that great Victorian revival of all ideas of chivalry. 1930s, C.S. Lewis, obviously a great medievalist as well as the creator of the Narnia stories, called courtly love a movement compared to which the Renaissance was a mere ripple on the surface of literature. But three decades on from that, sceptical 1960s, you've got Professor Robertson saying that too many of his academic colleagues were, quote, teaching medieval history to the tune of hearts and flowers, saying indeed that all it had ever been is this recherche literary game for the aristocracy, why were we still taking it seriously? Well, there has always been an element of mockery around courtly love. Maybe Chrétien de Troyes was even thinking of it back in the 1170s. And certainly, you know, Andreas Capellanus, also at the same court, probably, of Marie de Champagne, he wrote down these rules of courtly love. And it may be that he had his tongue just as firmly in his cheek as Lerner and Lowe when they wrote Camelot, the musical and the movie. But, big but, A, it's no use satirising something unless there is a reality there to satirise. This idea did stick around for centuries. And although Andreas Capellanus, this 12th century writer, painted a picture of actual courts of love where ladies like Marie de Champagne and Eleanor of Aquitaine presided over actual courts debating knotty points like was true love within marriage even possible? They decided it wasn't. Now, no one today really imagines that Eleanor and Marie were sitting there in these actual courts. But guess what? There was a sort of attempt to revive them in the early 15th century. And I think we have to accept that this idea wouldn't have proved so durable if it didn't fulfil an emotional need if it didn't have some kind of emotional reality. And I almost feel that's where we come in today. Because the trend of the 60s, for example, of those who said that courtly love was never anything more than an upmarket fantasy, it was very much to throw away these sort of old chocolate box kind of ideas. But I think in a way the baby went with the bathwater. Today, we have more of an interest partly in the history of the emotions. We have more of an interest in women's history. And of course, one thing about this is that it opened emotional, mental, or in the case of Elizabeth I, practical possibilities for women. And about that question of the evidence 
being there for whether courtly love ever moved outside the pages and into the real world. I'd say it is there. It's just the medievalists were looking for it in the wrong century. I'd say it's the Tudor century that does provide evidence of actual practical political use. And do you think that starts with Elizabeth of York, our first Tudor queen? Yeah, good question, because Elizabeth of York is someone about whom, in a sense, we don't know anything like as much as we'd like to. But one of the few things we do know is her signature as a girl, as a princess, Elizabeth the King's daughter, you know, in a volume of Arthurian romances in the Royal Library. And of course, her parents... Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville had made use of those tropes of courtly love to excuse their own quite controversial marriage when the young king met this beautiful widow. It was presented as they met under an oak tree on a May Day. Elizabeth Woodville resisted his advances, thereby proving that nobility of worth not birth that was one of the hallmarks of the courtly creed so yes i think there was a strain of it even that early henry tudor not someone we think of as a romantic figure but certainly savvy enough to make use of the arthurian stories which had become so entwined with the ideas of courtly love his banner at Bosworth was the Rouge Dragon Dreadful. Red Dragon of Wales, yes, but also Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur was published by Caxton in the year of Bosworth, 1485. And Mallory described how a red dragon beat down a tyrant boar, the boar, of course, symbol of Richard III. And we know that Henry VII called his eldest son Arthur, ensured he was born at Winchester, which Mallory had identified as Camelot. And when Philip of Burgundy, that hip-hot-and-happening star of the tournament, came to visit or was washed up on English shores, Henry took care to show him the round table at Winchester. After all, the Tudors were a new dynasty and one with a very dubious blood claim to the throne. So, what more useful for them? What, Johnny's come lately? Good heavens, no. How dare anyone? They were King Arthur's heirs, weren't they? Yes, that's very interesting. And I suppose if we move on to think about Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, well, there we have a marriage between a woman who very much is not a Johnny come lately and is bringing all that kudos to the Tudors. But do you think we see, if anything, the roles reversed? I mean, I guess I'm talking over the long term of their marriage. Or do you think that we can say that we see courtly love here? Once we get to Anne Boleyn, it feels we're on clear territory. But before that... I think we need here to see the young Henry and the Catherine of Aragon he married as a boy of 18 marrying a woman five, six years older. In different terms, we think of Catherine of Aragon as this rather frumpy, ageing figure, doughty but hardly romantic. In fact, when a very young and very inexperienced Henry VIII came to the throne and very quickly rushed to marry Catherine of Aragon, A, she was a much more glamorous figure, but also there was, I think, a kind of romantic rescue fantasy going on. Because Catherine, of course, had been treated so badly 
in the last days of Henry VII, after the death of Prince Arthur, her first husband, that I think there was quite a sort of pattern of courtly love. I mean, the courtly lady was supposed really to be perhaps older, more experienced. Here was Catherine, not only older, and as you say, from a more established dynasty, it could almost have felt like, you know, almost higher blood rank, but one with more experience, one who could perform that role. There isn't, I feel, much evidence that Catherine of Aragon herself was really taken with the courtly fantasy. I think that she, like her daughter Mary, when the time came, marched to a different drummer. But of course, Henry, the young Henry, rode in the tournaments, you know, wearing Sir Loyalheart, Coloyal, you know, with her initial embroidered on his horse's trappings and so on. I think they were playing that game to a degree. Yes, Henry definitely seems to have been fond of it in terms of dressing up as Robin Hood or whatever, all these occasions that we have. He liked a bit of pantomime. But it's interesting to think that it's he who's driving it, really, in those years, and Catherine's just sort of going along for the ride. If we rush to the late 1520s, we get the love letters to Anne Boleyn. And do you think that these really sort of reveal the courtly lover, the suffering lover, the dismissive beloved, or... Is that the impression that you get from them? That is absolutely the game they were playing. I mean, the trouble is, courtly love, even though Henry wrote, I love true where I did marry, you know, in the early days, but courtly love had never really been equipped to deal with a lot about marriage. The realities of what when the gloss wears off, you know, an ageing wife, the disappointments of childbed. And so I think he was still, he was totally up for this game. And when Anne came along, Nicola Shulman, in her wonderful book on Wyatt, described Anne as an adept in a game where Henry wished to learn, wished to play. I think of Henry VIII as very much a kind of aspirational monarch, one who lived by theories, lived by ideas, by fantasies, if you like. I think the Tudors were a fantastical dynasty in more senses than one. And so here was Anne, who could at least present herself as a mistress of this game. And Henry's letters to Anne, they use the language of courtly love. Though king, he presents himself as Anne's servant. Courtly love is all about the heart. You know, Henry was always drawing these little hearts on the end of his letter to Anne. My heart and I commend ourselves to your service. Sometimes he forgets himself and a flash of the king peeps through, but he's enjoying himself, I think. They're very raunchy, those letters, I always think. The one we always refer to, longing to kiss her pretty duckies, yes. He sends her that bit of buck, that deer, and says, eat this and think of me. And you have to think, what is he saying here? I mean, that's actually potentially pretty erotic. Well, I know. And I mean, and heart flesh for Henry, he says, doesn't he? I always think in that letter where he asks her to deliver herself body and soul to him so that he can call her his true mistress, it sounds as if he wants to gobble her up whole. <laughs> yes. And I always wonder, though, clearly there is the language of courtly love here. As you say, he's identifying himself as a servant and the, the heart theme is a strong one. But I... I wonder if it's magnified by the fact that we don't have Anne's 
applies to Henry. So by accidental archival fate, she becomes the passive woman in this courtly love game. One of the few things we do know, of course, that Anne sent Henry isn't a letter. It's that ship jewel, the jewel, you know, with the maiden adrift on a stormy sea. Obviously, she's adrift, you know, Henry may be her refuge, etc. But also, in the literature of courtly love, Petrarch was only one who identified seasickness and lovesickness. In that duel, was Anne even saying she'd fall in love with Henry? We can't know, but it's an interesting possibility. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History Hit podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. I suppose when we're dealing with courtly love, we're dealing with a sort of cultural system, some of which is just lost to us. The, the meanings that they could read into things, but to give a completely disconnected example, but I always think if you were plumped down in 2020 and someone had said something about going for an eyesight test and everyone around you had laughed, you wouldn't have any idea what it was about unless you knew the news about Barnard Castle. You know, like things get meanings that they only get from their culture and we can't necessarily understand it. And we find this time and time again, don't we, if we're honest, in the Tudor period, that that, I think, is one reason I was so keen to explore this code, if you like, because the world of courtly love, preserved in literature, the Arthurian stories, everyone from, you know, Chaucer to Petrarch and Dante made use of it in one way or another. So we can look back on this literary mountain in the same way as the Tudors did. We know where Anne Boleyn was first recorded at the Tudor court, 1522, the siege of the Chateau Vert, this mask, ladies defending a castle against knights who are assaulting it. We don't have pictures of the siege of the Chateau Vert, but we have the kind of pictures the Tudors would have been looking at when they commissioned it. The Luttrell Psalter, you know, two centuries before, is only one example. Again, you've got the ladies defending a castle, the castle of love, throwing flowers to beat off the knights. So in a strange sense, I feel looking at this strange prism called courtly love, or looking through it, allows us almost to look out almost from behind Tudor eyes, with a kind of identification we don't often find. And one thing that you talk about in your book that I particularly love that shows us that women were not always passive is the Devonshire Manuscript. So for those who haven't come across this, this is this wonderful collection of handwritten verse circulating among both men and women, friends, at Henry VIII's court. What does it reveal to you about 
Tudor love, do you think? What did you make of it? No, like you, I was fascinated to look into the Tudor manuscript. And of course, one of the chief movers and shakers behind it was Margaret Douglas, the king's niece, who would have been in Anne's chamber in her period as queen. We know that, as indeed were a number of the others, Mary Shelton and so on. And it operated almost like a kind of WhatsApp group. You know, I love the modernity of the way they've got sort of one handwriting that maybe Mary should forget this and another one writing, no, it's worthy, you know. They were using this as a kind of communication. I think it shows because indeed a lot of the poems do reference the courtly tradition, a lot of them written by Thomas Wyatt. Just to what degree it was still alive and vivid and either influencing or reflecting behaviour in real life because... Very shortly after Anne Boleyn's fall, Margaret Douglas was herself in the Tower for an illicit love affair, not the last in her life. Yes, and this is so interesting, isn't it? Because it seems that with courtly love, the great beauty of the game is its ambiguity. And so the great question that we have when we're looking at these things is about whether we are reading autobiographical work. So Margaret Douglas secretly marries or is engaged to the Duke of Norfolk's younger brother, Lord Thomas Howard, and both of them have written in this Devonshire manuscript. But whether we're reading about their fantasies or their real-life relationship is hard to know. I know, and of course, the place where we really hit that most strongly, I think, is in Thomas Wyatt's poetry. We'd all love to think that, you know, when he writes about the heart, the collar around her neck saying, do not touch me for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold though I seem tame. We really want it to be about Anne Boleyn, and it may be, but just like Shakespeare's Dark Lady, Otto, it may well be an imaginary construct. Yes, that's right. You mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier, and I always love the way that he talks about how disagreeable it must have been to be a woman who was loved by Wyatt, because he's always full of resentment and sort of moaning on. Then he checks himself and says, no, I'm being unjust, and actually, of course, this is all performative. It's meant to be recited. It's supposed to create an atmosphere in the group to whom it's read, rather than necessarily being all true. Yes, indeed. But I also love Nicholas Shulman writing of Wyatt that the courtly lover in full plaint can sound less heartbroken than gazumped. And I think that's very true also. Yes, that's right. That's very good. And in fact, Nicholas Shulman's work and Susan Brigden's on Wyatt came out in the same year. And anyone interested must go and read both of them. They're very, very good. But also Wyatt, as you say, there's this idea about whether that deer he describes in Whoso Lister Hunt is Anne Boleyn. When we get to Anne Boleyn, I mean, I've written about this before, thinking about the fall of Anne Boleyn as a kind of crisis of gender relations. On the one hand, you've got expectations of women's sexual conduct and expectations of Anne as a courtly lover, and they clash, and this is kind of fatal. I mean, how do you see courtly love operating in Anne's downfall? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because one of the big debatables is going to go on being what really caused the fall of Anne Boleyn. But even to assume that her fall was entirely the product of Henry's desire for a son, court politics, you know, her disagreement with Cromwell over the dissolution of the monasteries, at the very lowest, 
Courtly love must have provided a language, if you like, with which to blame her. It would have been a weapon in Cromwell's hands. Even if recent work has tended more, hasn't it, and rightly so, to focus on the vehemence of her religious reform and so on. So in many ways it comes over as a rather outmoded idea to think of the, quote, pastime in the Queen's chamber, to see her as a victim of courtly love, you know, as one who failed to distinguish between the different roles of the wife and the mistress. But I think there was an element of that. And again, at the very lowest, these were the terms in which she would be accused. It would be in sexual language that she would be blamed and condemned. I think that's absolutely right and completely present in the indictment against her is this language of her having enticed these men into these relationships. But I also think you're absolutely right in that there's not really going to be a contradiction between her being an agent in terms of religious reform and being a victim or at least failing to meet expectations in some other area of her life. I mean, we're all of us, we're this strange mixture of the two, aren't we? Well, indeed. And also, I think there has tended to be a slightly crude picture of either Anne as the religious reformer or Anne as the court flirt, effectively a flibbity gibbet. And I think that's misguided because apart from anything else, courtly love had had a moral dimension. When Dante references it, Beatrice, or indeed Laura for Petrarch, they are the lodestars, Castiglione's Book of the Courtier even. It says that you know, if the noble courtier loves and is loved by the great lady, both will attain absolute perfection. So I don't think contemporaries would necessarily have recognised this black and white and was either religious or flirtatious in quite the way that we do. Yes, she's often spoken about in binaries. Let's skip forward to her daughter's court, because if at times Wyatt is comparing the dismissive beloved to a tyrant, at Elizabeth's court, courtly love kind of becomes a form of tyranny, doesn't it? Yes, it certainly becomes a tool to Elizabeth's hands. And yes, of course, there was an element of the tyrant if the dominatrix in Elizabeth, so I think she'd probably rather enjoyed cracking that particular whip and that whip is an image that's been used in a number of modern psychological writers on courtly love i've got this wonderful 1960s book on my shelves describes it as a sadomasochistic fantasy complicated by memories of spankings in boyhood anyway again written in the 60s but for elizabeth courtly love is vital it reaches its apogee if you like i think when Elizabeth came to the throne, the idea of a queen regnant was still a controversial one. We'd had Mary, yes, but Mary married, so joined her authority to that of a husband. And as a Catholic, was arguably under a higher spiritual authority, that of Rome in any case. Elizabeth, it's hindsight that says the Virgin Queen... The absolute assumption in the early days of her reign would be that she had to marry. But when it became apparent she wasn't going to, that she was treading a more controversial path even than her sister, there had to be a language for this female monarchy and courtly love absolutely provided it. 
I mean, a lot of us, when we first came to read the stories of Elizabeth's court, you know, as teenagers or whatever, must have sort of looked at some of the letters and thought, boy, how could the courtiers say that? How could the men write that and keep a straight face? Well, the literature of courtly love provides the answers. And really, it's almost uncanny how closely the ideas of courtly love fit the relationship of Elizabeth and her courtiers and even of her country. If the courtly lady was supposed to be demanding and capricious, well, Elizabeth didn't have much trouble with that one, did she? It licensed her own flirtatious behaviour, but it allowed her to go so far, but then to retreat, never to go the whole way. It did mean that the men who were meant to be sort of, you know, frozen in this posture of adoration for bleeding decades, looked, oh, admirable, sanctioned, noble lovers, rather than just looking ridiculous. More than that, even, there is, again, that moral element. The courtly lady was supposed to provide a moral example well, you can't get much more of a moral example than a queen who the ritual of the coronation is allied to God and who's supposed to be the spiritual leader of her whole country. It explains a lot, you know? It does, and I like very much that idea that it's giving some dignity back to these slightly pathetic otherwise men who are trying to get her attention as courtiers, not so much as councillors perhaps. But do you think any of them got it wrong? I always wonder about Hatton, that he seems to have been kind of genuinely in love with her. Well, to me, there's quite a strong distinction. If it said Elizabeth had four great favourites, I totally agree. People like Cecil's are in a different category altogether. But four great favourites, Leicester and Hatton, Raleigh and Essex. I think there is a difference between the two generations. Leicester, of course, at first did cherish real hopes of marriage, you know, and indeed, I'd say their relationship became almost familial. He, in a sense, he wasn't natural as a courtly lover. I think Hatton played that game more readily. To me, I think both Hatton and Lester had a very genuine fondness, for, yes, love for Elizabeth. I don't believe Hatton can possibly have cherished, you know, real hopes of her. To me, there's a difference between Raleigh and the dreaded Essex, who use the language of courtly love even more extravagantly. But then I think, again, the game is becoming quite hyperbolic, but it's also becoming quite attenuated, quite unreal. And I don't feel the genuine, rightly or wrongly, the genuine affection from those later generation of favourites and courtiers as I did from the early ones. I mean, she wasn't a fool, though. She's using it, isn't she? She's not just believing every word that they're saying, that she's saying she looks like a young Venus or whatever. No, far from it. I almost changed positions in the course of writing this book because I think I began it by thinking of the Tudors as almost fools for love, a dynasty in love with the idea of romance. Well, I think there's elements of truth in that, but I also came to feel that, no, the Tudors, the monarchs, were the ones who actually really used and exploited this ideology. 
After all, who were the ones who wound up with their heads cut off? Anne Boleyn and the Earl of Essex and poor Catherine Howard along the way. So the Earl of Essex, do you think he was the last great hurrah for courtly love? I'd say his relationship with Elizabeth was the last great hurrah. My own feeling, having read quite a lot of his letters and so on, is that he did exploit it fairly cynically. I think in a sense he, perhaps Raleigh too, but particularly he, were using its language, its tropes, in the hopes of as it were, fooling Elizabeth and perhaps fooling themselves as well. Essex's writings show a very sort of marked disparity between what he said and what he felt. So yes, I do see that relationship as the last great hurrah in a sense. But I mean, to me, the game had actually lost emotional reality by then. I'm interested in this relationship of Elizabeth and Essex and in the reasons it hasn't been explored more fully because it is still a curiously underexplored aspect of Elizabeth's reign, I feel. There's been, you know, very important academic work on the political side of it, Essex's relationship with the Cecils and so on. But really, no one, it seems to me, since Lytton Strachey back in the 1920s, has really much moved on. I mean, he wrote this kind of wonderfully ludicrous Freudian analysis of Elizabeth and Essex. But we haven't really moved on in any way. No one's very happy to try and decide whether it was a quasi-maternal relationship, actually a maternal relationship, whether Elizabeth was utterly in love with him or whether they were both just playing each other for fools. And you referred earlier to the legacy of courtly love and how we still have this sense of it infecting our ideas today. Could you give a few more examples where we might not look, we might look for the pre-Raphaelites and think that, but where you actually think you've seen it since you've been writing about it? Oh, well, in a lot of modern music, never mind opera, I think the ideas of courtly love, they to some degree became subsumed into the sort of broader idea of romance because the ages immediately after Elizabeth didn't have much use for it. I mean, James I was never going to be big on this, was he? But of course it got, you know, rediscovered, explored with Romanticism, the rediscovery of all things medieval and then the great Victorian revival. A lot of what we think of as romance, you know, love at first sight, love hurting, love ennobling, comes from this strand of courtly love, you know, rather than from other ideas of relations between men and women. I do think that massive Victorian revival is why we get it so directly, but we do. If I wanted to give an example of courtly love in the movies, I wouldn't necessarily look to Camelot, which was sending it up a little, or even A Knight's Tale, ditto, you know, which actually used some of the tropes from Chrétien de Troyes all those centuries earlier, I'd look to Casablanca. Humphrey Bogart standing on the tarmac, handing Ingrid Bergman back to her husband, as ennobled by his love as any knight in literature. And really, you keep on and on seeing it in music and from some of the most unlikely people. And heaven knows, you see it also in a confectionery advert. 
All because the lady loves milk tray. Yes, I mean, you know, the man, the lover, the knight, if you like, has gone through all these adventures just the way Lancelot does to reach Guinevere to give his demanding beloved what she wants. Guess what? The point is, if the idea didn't mean something to all of us, then there would have been no point in them shooting that very popular advert. But do you think it still means that women are put on pedestals just so they can fall? I think there is an element of that. I would like to think we're moving away from it now. But it is very notable that Germaine Greer and other feminists of her era, her wave, found it worthwhile writing about courtly love at some length and analysing its sometimes pernicious effect. Thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher Esther Arnott and my producer Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.